Welcome to the Second Reading Podcast from the University of Texas at Austin. The Republicans were in the Democratic Party because there was only one party. So I tell people on a regular basis, there is still a land of opportunity in America. It's called Texas. The problem is these departures from the Constitution, they have become the norm. At what point must a female senator raise her hand or her voice to be recognized over the male colleagues in the room? And welcome back to the Second Reading Podcast. I'm Jim Henson, director of the Texas Politics Project at the University of Texas at Austin. Happy to be joined again today by Josh Blank, research director of the same Texas Politics Project. How are we this uh, late August morning? Ambivalence. Not to be confused <laughs> with a hot August night. Yeah, that's, I don't a, know. that's a that's a dad joke. If ever there was one, I love dad jokes. <laughs> um, I, that's a, that literally your dad would get that joke, and that's you know. Yeah. A couple of our listeners out there, I know, will get it, but that's about it. <laughs> so today, I I thought we'd fold in a couple of overlapping subjects, but really, you know, the, something of the moment kind of return to the overarching theme that we keep coming back to in a lot of ways, and I, that is the state of democracy in the U.S. and in Texas. And this is kind of front and center as we record this on Wednesday morning. President Joe Biden scheduled to deliver a speech on Thursday that the White House has heavily advanced uh, as addressing, quote unquote, the continued battle for the soul of the nation. Now, the the symbolism here has been, and the language... I'm retching a little bit over here, guys. Don't yeah, worry. you know, have been pretty, you know, it's been pretty focused and relentless, but it's worked. I mean, yeah. in the sense that, you know, the, I think you have to call it much anticipated, but it's also, I think it's fair to say it's a little heavy handed. They're delivering the speech from Independence Hall in Philadelphia in, in prime time. A little cringy, but, you know. Well, it. you know, I, it's interesting. Cringy for us, but I, I you know, uh, I'll be interested to see how it goes over. Sure. And, it, you know, one of the reasons I really wanted to talk about this today, I mean, we've talked about this theme a lot, and I think for good reason. But one of those reasons is that this is one of a number of things that we've now seen in the last few years where, you know, the substantive context of this speech as it's been communicated to us mm-hmm. and the very apparent political context of this speech as we talk about the Biden team hammering the speech home sort of relentlessly – you know, are, are on a continuum in a lot of ways. I mean, I think there's a there's sometimes a, a tendency to kind of say, well, that, you know, that wasn't substantive. That was just politics. Well, the politics and the substance here, yeah. perhaps because we're talking about the functioning of the political system, right. are closely intertwined, though there are obviously some politics of the moment. You know, and it could be, again, the nature of the beast, because certainly developments that we've seen in national politics provide a rationale for this speech. I mean, 30 years ago, if you gave a speech about democracy, it would be in the U.S., it would be seen as kind of a symbolic speech or something that was, you know, maybe not directly related. Well, the context, the context in which people would receive it would be pretty different. Yeah, to what was going on at the moment. Yeah. But, you know, there's been a lot of shifts in the political context in the last decade that you can't ignore that are also 
part of the political strategy, but also, I think, a substantive thrust that the Biden administration thinks is important. A lot of people think is important right now. Yeah. And I think the reason that, you know, I mean, I think your whole idea about the continuum there versus sort of, you know, policy and politics or context and, you know, politics or whatever, you know, pra- <laughs> pragmatism and whatever. Right. I mean, ultimately, everything is principle every, and pragmatism. Yeah. I mean, but every, you know, anything that's effective is going to have some mix of those. And I mean, the balance, you know, ultimately, if you're completely political and it has nothing to do with the substance of the time or the moment or whatever, it's going to miss the target. And if you're completely over, you know, over focused on the substance and something, but it's not practical and it's not, it doesn't have the same sort of political juice, it's not going to go anywhere. Yeah. So ultimately, everything that's relatively successful in some is going to have some mix of these things that is, you know, I think going to turn some people off automatically, not surprisingly, yeah. and, and make some other, and I think, you know, the thing about this right now in the moment is that it's making other people like us a little bit, let's say, skeptical. But let's Well, say. yeah. And I, you know, and the thing is, well, and it's funny. I mean, I, I would say two things about that and, you know, before we even get started, but I mean, I. <laughs> We haven't started. You know, I think one of the things that's interesting is that, you know, you kind of said, you know, that there's always this mixture. It's not going to work. On the other hand, we've just come out of a presidency where there were times when it felt like it was purely political I'm at not times, sh- right? Yeah, and I'm not sure that that really worked. I mean, it depends on what <laughs> right. you want. I mean, well, again, you know, what, and again, it's like, you know, be all getting this, get all sciencey, but like, well, what's your outcome measure? Yeah, right. it worked how, but anyway, yes. You know, well, I would say outcome, you know, electoral success, we won for two. Yeah, well, there you go. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Which isn't bad if you're running for president. I mean, since most people that run for president are zero for yeah. one or zero for two. I mean, you know, I don't, this is this goes too far into the way. I mean, I think thinking about the context in which the one happened and what the nature of that was, there was a lot more, you know, both, I think, substantive and political alignment than there was over time where sort of the political and the substantive started to get further and further apart. Yeah. And, you know, so anyway. I, yeah. yeah. I, mean, we're, we're, I think we're, we're drowning in abstraction here. Yeah, let's here, stop but drowning in abstraction. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> That's good. But, you know, substantively, right. there are a lot of current events driving Biden's address right. on that spectrum from, you know, kind of principle and politics. You know, so let's start from one end. I mean, certainly the, you know, issues of the design and, and the principles underlying American democracy – that have been ra- have been raised by the current conflict between Trump and the federal government over the presidential and national security documents that we now know without a doubt were at Mar-a-Lago. And I think to the extent that one is trying to, you know, it's gotten hard for anybody to deny that. And I think uh, as we're recording this Wednesday morning in the filing late last night, Justice Department went as far, and this is an interesting combination of the pragmatic yeah. and the right. and the legal, you know, released a photo of, you know, some of the, the cover sheets that said top secret, confidential, et cetera. So right. they were there. But this conflict between Trump and the federal government, you know, has really raised a lot of fundamental issues of principle and and and, and how institutions should function in, in the system. I mean, I think you'd be pretty hard pressed to deny that Donald Trump has a view of presidential power that is almost without limits. I mean, he certainly seemed to feel that way when he was in office. All of the accounts are, suggest that certainly, especially early in his presidency, but really even towards the end, anytime he ran into some impediment to exercising presidential power, you know, he thought it was unreasonable and, you know, at some points didn't seem to even understand why that would even be the case. And again, if you sort of into the point of, you know, sort of taking this as fact or whatever, the reason we know this is because the people in the administration have sort of leaked these conversations where yeah. they're trying to say, explain to, you know, 
Trump at the time why he could not do this or why this would be extra constitutional or, you know, again. Right. so this is pretty much out there. And so now we're seeing, you know, we're, we're seeing some degree of evidence of an extension of this thinking even when he's out of office. Right. Now, you know, Donald Trump is nothing if not an example of a very personalistic conception of political power and institutional authority mm-hmm. to understate the case. So it's not especially surprising, but it's still fairly unprecedented in terms of his presumption of power. And at a moment when very clearly he is, you know, the front runner in the Republican field yeah, as absolutely. of this moment to, to run again, you know, it also raises these order, you know, these, these issues of the the orderly succession in the presidency, which has now been sort of disrupted by right. the last succession. I which, think we can just say has been disrupted. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and, and issues of the rule of law. They're not the same, but they are related. And look, to be fair, there are real issues about the legal prosecution of a former president, mm-hmm. you know, particularly one who is still considered a political contender, right. as we've said, you know, and, you know, I, I think... To be fair, on the other side, it's been noted recently that, you know, it's become relatively common in other democracies, including, you know, more populous democracies within kind of North Atlantic alliance, if you will, for legal investigations of former chief executives or heads of state to take place, and occasionally for people to be found guilty and suffer penalties. Right. But it's not common in the United States. Right. And this does make this investigation and the prosecution tricky, not only in political terms, which is pretty obvious and as we're seeing, but also in institutional terms. And we're seeing that in the way that this process is unfolded. I mean, no matter, and so no matter how much there's a lack of evidence, you know, that how much the evidence at hand begins to grow that it's justified, the lack of precedent, precedent does make it kind of a boundary testing development in this moment. Yeah, I think, you know, on its face, you know, in the moment, this this notion of, well, you know, a former president in the U.S. has never been treated this way, has never been investigated this way, has never been prosecuted. But when you link the two points you make about sort of Trump's view of power uh, and sort of both in office, but then, you know, now really, especially outside of office, you know, where the most charitable kind of interpretation we can take, I think that one could take about his his holding of these, you know, very classified government documents at his house is that he felt that he was entitled to them as a former president, right. which that's the, that, that's really the best we can do. But then the problem with, again, what came out last night is that if you kind of go through the legalese of it all is like, and he also hid them when asked. Right. It's very hard to defend, but this is the whole thing we say, well, yeah. it's unprecedented to prosecute a former president. We say, yeah, but like, honestly, it's unprecedented for a president who lost an election to, you know, whip up a crowd and sort of send them to the Capitol. It's also unprecedented for a former president to take a bunch of, you know, classified right. documents to his house. So like, we're in a time that's unprecedented. I mean, I think some people point it out rightly and people say, oh, you know, we'll get to this, but you know, the country will be torn apart if we go through on this. And, and I think what some people point out is that because we're in a state of normalcy right now. Right. So that's, you know, to layer some of those things together in the context. The train's a little bit left the station on (laughs) that, or at least pulling out. Um, (laughs) Certainly. So another aspect, so so there's that whole cluster of things that are, again, concrete institutional questions, but with very powerful political overtones in the moment. So another thing that's, you know, at play here then that this obviously sort of touches into is the on, you know, we've sort of backed into this a little and talking about January 6th, but the ongoing conflicts over popular views of, how the you know how well the election process is working, how it should work, and we talked about this in some detail a few weeks ago. But you know, obviously, we've got candidates who are running for office 
based on a promise to manage the system in a partisan way. And we talked about that mm-hmm. quite a bit a couple weeks ago. You know, we've got increasing evidence of, of intimidation of state and especially local election officials. Recent examples in Texas and Gillespie County. Um, you know, Gillespie County, outside of Austin, for those of you who don't know the Texas geography or from live in another part of the state, where county seat Fredericksburg, um, you know, known mostly as kind of a tourist destination. Mm-hmm. But currently, without any election administration personnel, after all three people that staff that operation in the county, and it's not a highly populous county, even though it's growing, uh, they all resigned in the face of harassment, efforts to intimidate. Now, that story is a fascinating rabbit hole for the latest. There's a really good Texas Tribune story from earlier, or maybe over the weekend, by Mattia Contreras and, and the Vote Beat folks, including Jessica Huseman, which introduced this weird angle of the convergence of the very public kind of election integrity, true the vote folks on the far right who are making this concerted effort to take over election apparatus and change this function of elections in a lot of ways. But also, you know, the the oldie but goodie anti-fluoride movement. Yeah. And just to bring this back to sort of Biden's response in the moment, you know, you mentioned sort of the candidates who are running for office based on this promise, basically to manage yeah. this in a partisan way. And the reality is where we've been focusing on that the most, most has been in the states that were the most contested in the last election right. cycle. But here's the thing I would point out, an election cycle in which Biden won most of those states. And so ultimately, to some degree, and to my mind, you know, there is an advantage to be played to sort of going on the offense on an issue that was, you know, in some ways kind of already decided in some of these states, right? right? Well, that's one, you know, and, you know, and, and the flip side of that is, you know, it's a strange thing in Texas. I mean, you know, we went into this in the podcast, but just to flag again, historically speaking, you'd be hard pressed to find too many other places in the state. There are a few, but it's Gillespie County and that hill country is certainly one of the areas that have been most reliably Republican, not just during the recent Republican ascendance, but in the history of the state. Yeah. I mean, there were Republicans in Gillespie County where there weren't Republicans hardly anywhere else. I so. mean, there's some stuff in that in that article. We're going to we'll come back to this a little bit yeah. later. But there's some stuff in that article that I think is really, you know, very troubling and thinking about the way that elections are going to be conducted in Texas going forward. There's a couple of nuggets in there we'll come back to. Right. So another piece of this then that is, you know, uh, part of this institutional political context is the the uptick in political violence that we've seen in the country and, and, you know, maybe just as important as what we've already seen. And obviously January 6th is very important, but you know, to my mind, it's just as important, if not more so that there is a growing expectation of violence and uh, out in the electorate and in the population and the citizenry and the views that political violence is justified. Yeah, or at least, yeah, I mean. And there, you know, we've seen lots of examples of this. Now, some of it is, you know, I mean, you know, the Lindsey Graham warning last week that there would be riots on Fox News, I think, about that there would be, quote unquote, riots in the streets if Trump is prosecuted. He since had to walk that back a little bit, you know, but that's what we expect from Lindsey Graham right now is he's trying to be all things to all people without alienating well, Trump. But more importantly, we've seen a lot of this in national polling data. Yeah. And I mean, when we've been talking about this over the last couple of weeks where, you know, there's sort of this very, very, you know, fine line between, you know, reflecting the views of your constituents on the one hand and, you know, inciting, you know, potentially dangerous actions on the other. And so, I mean, the Graham quote is kind of a perfect example Especially of that. when you know that this is out there. Yeah, you know that it's, I mean, you can't say, you can't play dumb, right? right? And we can't, we can't, and part of the data that we'll just go real quick, this national polling data points out the fact that you can't assume when you start sort of threatening or, you know, opining about the possibility of violence if something happens, 
that for a large share of Americans at this point, they're going to say, okay. Because what we found is, you know, as we look around, so nationally, March 2021, uh, CNN poll conducted found that 71% of adults nationally said that there would be political violence in, res- in, res- in response to an election result in the next few years. One in three said that it was very likely that this would happen. Right. Uh, as for May, June 2022, uh, Life in America survey by UC Davis found 67% of people perceived a serious threat to democracy. This is uh, this must be in California. Yeah, this is in California. No, this is everywhere. 48% expressed some agreement with the statement, if elected v- leaders will not protect American democracy, the people must do it themselves, even if it requires taking violent actions. I don't think that's a great survey question, by the way, nor do I like no. the response options. But just to paint the point, I mean, th- but, but if you're looking to see whether there's appetite out there or, or acceptance of this kind of view of things, it, it's out there, right? Yeah. You know, in the same poll, respondents were nearly evenly split on whether they agreed or disagreed uh, that there will be a civil war in the U.S. in the next few years. Statewide polling, whether a Democratic state or Republican state in January 2022, 40 percent of California adults said they expected an increase in political violence in the U.S. While in June 22 polling, 22 polling here in Texas, we found 64 percent of Texas voters said the same. So ultimately, there there are a lot of people out there who perceive an environment right. that, you know, that is inviting more political violence. Yeah. And I think if you step back and kind of look at that, just all those examples, I mean, when you use that CNN poll for March 2021, I mean, one might say, okay, well, yeah, that was within a couple of months of January 6th. But we were getting that result more than a year after that in June yeah. of 2022. Mm-hmm. And there are just multiple factors that are keeping this in the public eye. And it's, you know, it's kind of taken on, you know, a life of its own now as a discussion point out there, but there's an in, there's an institutional piece of this. And again, with political overtones, I mean, certainly in addition to, you know, Liz Cheney's desire to make sure that Donald Trump is never, never holds elected office again. One of the broader points of the January 6th committee is to make sure that the public doesn't forget that the January 6th riot in the Capitol was an unambiguous instance of kind of anti-democratic political violence. Mm-hmm. You know, certainly when they started those televised hearings, right? they started by saying, hey, let's just all remember what we're talking about. Okay, so as we tease out what this context is, you know, now we sort of get a little bit more into the, you know, the balance between the political and the and the institutional begins to shift a little bit on the spectrum. I mean, the re-eruption of Trump as a major storyline in the national news in the wake of the Mar-a-Lago search, the revelations about the retention of restricted documents has really contributed, along with several other things, to a reframing of Biden's public position, right? And even, you know, what people are thinking about when you mention the rule of law. And certainly the Biden team has seen that happening and sees that as an opportunity. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think what you're seeing is a couple of things. One, after a number of years in which sort of the discussion around the rule of law was really centered around the police response to, uh, you know, Black Lives Matters protests uh, and then sort of the response to the responses. Right. Right. Yeah, you know, the defund the police. Defund meme, the police the movement, all that. They really benefited Republicans, especially in 2020. You know, all of a sudden this sort of situation where and we talked about this a few weeks ago, but the idea that, you know, <laughs> you know, the FBI executes a search warrant on Mar- Mar-a-Lago, which honestly, as we said at the time, like, got to be a pretty high bar for this to right. happen. And to have basically almost every Republican almost basically immediately defend the president, just notably everyone who's running for president in 2020, immediately on the Republican side, defending uh, Trump, you know, this starts to raise this question. It's like, well, okay, but like we're talking about defunding the FBI. We're talking about, you know, 
uh, shooting, you know, and attacking FBI offices. Right. We're talking about attacking the IRS. We're talking, you know, about the fact that, yes, Trump had national security secrets at his resort, but, you know, why should he be prosecuted over, you know, a clerical error? You know, this idea of like, well, wait, who's for the rule of law? It becomes muddied. And I mean, right. and I'm not saying that all of a sudden this becomes some issue that the Democrats own, but just as I think Republicans have made a lot of gains on the education issue by mudding the waters around what we talk about when we talk about education, we're talking about like paying teachers, test quality, you know, high yeah. standards to like, you know, essentially grooming children to become, you know, sexual targets. All of a sudden, whether that's true or not, it muddies the water. And I think there's something here too, whereas, you know, something that's so unambiguously a Republican issue, usually law and order. Now you say, well, it's becoming a little bit more complicated. Right. And, and I think that, you know, clearly the Biden folks have done a very focused job of attempting to put that 2020 issue to bed as much as they can in yeah. terms of the, you know, this is like, and, I mean, they've really flipped the police issue and they haven't completely flipped it. I mean, I don't, you know, I don't expect it, you no, know, but you, in any polling we do in the near future, we're going to say, oh, wow, Democrats have issue ownership of law enforcement and public safety now, but certainly- They've blunted that as as you're an election be, attack. You're going to be pretty hard pressed to find a clip of Biden or a clip of any Democrat running in any competitive district, one way or another, talking about defunding the police post yeah twenty twenty yeah I think that's a that's months. over. I mean, like yeah. so, and and you know, there's been a lot written about this recently, but certainly you know, and this is you know, this is reminiscent of what we saw during the Clinton years, and mm -hmm. and I think. You know, there is grumbling on the progressive side of the spectrum about this. Sure. You know, but I think it's fairly muted because of the election. And it will be interesting to see what this looks like, depending on the election outcome, as we go into the, the, the next phase of the political cycle after the election. You know, and just to get, you know, we don't really have to sort of beat this to death. But I mean, the flip side of this is that now in the wholly political part of this, really, anxieties about the economy while certainly still present. And I think the Biden people have to be careful. Oh, yeah about overplaying this, they've certainly become less intense as the inflation rate seems to have stabilized, gas prices are down, all the other economic fundamentals are still f fairly good. Now, you know, the Fed is going to continue to ratchet right. this down. This is not going to go away. But at least in this moment, that has subsided a little bit and created some space for the Biden folks to pivot and to talk about this. So Yeah, and experientially there hasn't been a slowdown in, in jobs and job creation, which right. I think, you know, there's always there's been this interesting kind of sub discussion, kind of the political economy kind of space about what people really react to and how you know, who's in power. You know, we're we talking about yeah. the strength of the economy, or we're talking about the strength, you know, the, the rate of the unemployment, we're looking at inflation. Obviously, it depends on which side of the aisle you sit on as to what you think we should look at when looking at the economy. But when we think about voters, you know, they notice if gas costs more because you're paying for gas, you know, on a weekly, if not more yeah. frequent basis and the price of groceries. But the other thing that people look at, if those things start to come under control is, is it easy for me to get another job? Is it easy for the people I know to get a job or people working? And right. as long as unemployment stays down and as long as, you know, the Fed doesn't really blow up the economy, you know, it's not likely that this is going to remain the right. same, at least in the same prime position as it was as an issue at the end of the spring, at the right. end of the fall, if things keep going this way. Well, yeah, yeah, as we've discussed here before, I mean, inflation was such a new thing to so yeah. many people, right, that, you know, it wasn't surprising that it got the kind of, but but that has now, like, you know, cooled a little bit. It's interesting you said, I would say, as a pollster, I mean, and, you know, just to say, being that I'm younger than you by a by little a bit. bit, by a bit, you know, most of my polling, when we sort of talk, when we see upticks in interest in the economy or concern about the economy, you know, it's almost always at least in sort of my span been about jobs 
It's been about, you know, whether or not there's jobs and what the unemployment rate really is, uh, if not politics or some combination. Whereas this is the first time where it's like, well, when we're talking about when people say the economy, what are they talking about? It's like they may have a job, but that's not the issue. Right. Right. This is it changes sort of the way we look at these things a little bit. So as we, you know, arrive then towards the more, you know, holy political part of the spectrum, you know, what is, you know, out there both. In the, in the general press and what we're hearing from the inside is that Democratic fortunes in this election cycle writ large are just not looking as grim as they did at the outset of the cycle, let alone, you know, a year, you know, even longer ago. More importantly, maybe in some ways in the short term or even at the beginning of the summer. Yeah. You know, so, you know, the Democrats seem on a path to, you know, have a decent chance of holding on to the Senate. You know, while Republicans still seem to, you know, odds on likely to take the majority in the House, it's not as of now looking like the total blowout right. that it was looking like, you know, even six, eight weeks ago. You know, and there are signs that those who said the Dobbs decision would be in political terms good for Democrats' election prospects seems to be the case. It's helped with mobilization, shifted the ele- the agenda focus. Um, we're getting these kind of impressionistic, but still somewhat data-based accounts of increases in voter registration, new voter registration by women, you know, in states where you can look at partisanship, it seems to be looking very much as we would expect to a Democratic advantage, et cetera. And, you know, together, you know, Democrats are just showing, you know, more mojo, you know, more of an ability and, uh, you know, to go on the offensive where they can. And Biden is, you know, clearly, you know, somebody been around the block, taking advantage of this. And so that does, again, I mean, the more I think about this, it's really about creating more space for them to make this kind of a speech mm-hmm. and and refocus what this election is going to be about for Democrats and theoretically for some other folks that are a little more persuadable. Well, so why don't you go to the next point then, I think. I think it wraps up and I'll come back in here. Yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, this is all converged with helping – you know, the current Bidenism, right? right? Don't, don't, you know, which is so classic, you know, Biden, I, I, I hesitate to utter it, but nonetheless, the don't compare me, don't compare me to the almighty, compare me to the alternative. And this is, you know, what the Democrats have really needed and what Republicans have been in that awkward position right. where nobody wants to say it too publicly. Right. You know, they'll say it occasionally to a reporter, but, you know, we do not want Donald Trump to be on the ballot this time. No. You know, Republicans want this to be about the economy and about Joe Biden's performance, such as it is. And all these things have converged in a way that just kind of says, you know, in a lot of ways, the the establishment, you know, Republican conventional wisdom was probably right all along, even though people were loath to utter it. And so, you know, Trump may be benefiting personally from in the short run and raising money for himself and whatever he's going to do with that money. But it, it is not helping Republicans up and down the ballot. And again, we're hearing things from Texas that are suggesting that, you know, Republican candidates are beginning to see this. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, even a few weeks before, you know, kind of all this really came to a head, you know, national Republicans like Mitch McConnell and, uh, you know, Minority Leader McCarthy were basically indicating as much about Republicans' chances needed or Republican expectations needed to be tempered. Right. You know, they had sort of their reasons why. And that was really even before Democrats sort of got something of their mojo back, uh, if you will. I don't like saying that, actually. Don't don't quote me on that. Too late. (laughs) 
<laughs> too late. But I mean, but there is a, but there's something, you know, I think in the last week or so, one of the things that's happened, it's sort of the amalgamation of a bunch of things, but ultimately you kind of see like how, you know, how on the ropes Democrats were through much of the spring. Right. I mean, there's really no response that they could really muster about the issues that were really kind of driving, you know, most of the agenda at that point, which is inflation, the border, and this idea of kind of like Biden, you know, sort of ineffectiveness. But ultimately, you know, since then, the, you know, the script has been flipped, another kind of nasty cliche, in a way that I think is really, it's, it's interesting to see, you know, again, how on the defensive Republicans are on the issues that seem to be kind of emerging. And, and I think about it this way, which is one, you know, as you said, I mean, the conventional wisdom is true is I think Republicans would like this to be a standard election with a Democrat in the White House and control of Congress and about a bad economy in the border. Right. Yeah. They don't want it to be about defending a former president's clearly difficult to defend actions. Right. Which I think, you know, this is what, you know, or about, you know, what they want to do to extend abortion prohibitions that are unpopular or what they're unwilling to do further about guns and some of these other right. issues in a place like Texas. And ultimately, this has kind of all been opened up. And so, I mean, what's interesting is on the one hand, you know, this whole idea of like Biden kind of take, you know, this whole soul of a nation thing is kind of cringy. But it's also this is this is the election he won. Right. I right. mean, ultimately, if we're talking about, you know, some degree of normalcy versus the sort of, you know, personalistic drive to kind of highlight grievances. Well, you know, I mean, I think, you know, a lot of political strategists will say this to the point that I think it's probably true, which is, you know, most campaigns have to have some sort of focus on the future. It can't just be about the past. Now, sometimes you can say we're, you know, it's a referendum on the incumbent. It is about the past. But usually that's not enough. And it's even it's even less than enough when you think about the ideas, you know, Republicans do not want to be in a position in 2022 and let alone certainly not in 2024 where they're basically having to relitigate the outcome of an election that took place four years ago that the majority of Americans think Joe Biden legitimately won and in the states that, you know, they're going to be competing in. Uh, nor further, they don't want to be sitting here and defending basically, you know, I mean, it's one thing to mobilize Republican grievances broadly about right. things. It's another thing to try to mobilize Trump's own personal grievance that he's being mistreated by the government again in his, you know, absconding right. with and hiding highly classified documents. Yeah. I that's mean, not a great, you know, that's just not a great place to be. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, I, you don't have to be in the tank for the Democrats or, you know, a, you know, a Trump hater or something to point out that in a lot of ways, what's happened with the documents at Mar-a-Lago is kind of the worst distillation of Trump for Republicans. I mean, even January 6th gave people, you know, however implausible it was, a certain some kind of sense that, look, that, you know, there was a popular discontent here. You know, people have, as you said, people have grievances, et cetera. The, the, the national security, do, you know, the document situation at Mar-a-Lago doesn't really admit itself of any of that. Well, you know, we've looked at, you know, these sort of polling questions about, you know, that are interesting out there about, you know, Trump's response, people's views of Trump's responsibility for, for the January 6th riots. And if you think about, you know, there's sort of two, you know, polar ends scale points. One would be he was completely responsible. And one would be, you know, he had no responsibility whatsoever. But the reality is, is that for a lot of people, there's, there's stuff in between, right? And even for yeah. a lot of Republicans, there's a space in between to say, you know, he's partly responsible or he could have done more to, you know, stop it or yeah. or whatever. But ultimately, right, there's a certain distance there to say, look, people are going to go to the, he didn't, you know, he didn't give them the guns, you know, or whatever. Yeah. But, you know, again, here, there's no distance between him and the act in yeah. this case. And, yeah, there's just not a lot of, you know, there's just not a lot of alternative narrative here other than what we are seeing, which is that, 
you know, the Biden administration is out to get them, well, right? Like, uh, and that's, you know, and that's not, or to question, that's obviously taking. Or but, to further question the application of the rule of law in this right. context. And again, I think it's a pretty hard, it's a hard case to argue. I mean, one of the things I'm thinking about just, you know, yeah. the questions that need to be answered, that'll be answered or need to be answered going forward. If you think about, you know, if you're trying to defend Trump on holding these documents there, I mean, one thing we don't know is, so in the period in which these documents were at Mar-a-Lago, could we see a list of all the people who visited Mar-a-Lago? Right. Because really, you and know, that's going to happen. And it's not going to take many bad, you know, names or potential, you know, national security threats or potential agents or foreign, you know, whatever to create a bad situation. Right. I mean, well, and I would, yeah, and I was saying here when this first broke, I mean, the other shoe that hasn't dropped is that eventually we're going to wind up seeing some of that video. Yeah. Of who was just walking around, who was walking in and out of those rooms. And that, that is not going to play well no matter what. So, you know, to wind this up, like, how does this all kind of land in Texas? I mean, you know, we'll, on one hand, you know, we've talked a lot about the evidence of the decay of democratic norms and, and faith in institutions. That's clearly evident here. We've seen it in our yeah. polling that we've talked about a lot. We talked about Gillespie County earlier. And, and the Gillespie County thing is really just one instance of something that is still kind of you know bubbling along in Texas politics. I mean, we've talked a lot about elite signaling, its reciprocal effect on public opinion. That is, you know, public doesn't know much about a situation. They look to elites for guidance. Elites provide guidance. It feeds public opinion. That becomes, you know, that grows. And then next thing you know, elites are responding to the effects that have been planted. And we did a whole podcast on that in elections just to sort of flag that again. Mm -hmm. But we're seeing, you know, a lot of this kind of tension that we're seeing that we were just talking about nationally or we referred to between Republican incumbents who are just, you know, I mean, you were talking about cringy with Biden, but, you know, who are looking at Trump and just kind of going, you know, we've gotten what we're going to get from this. And now the downsides are just kind of accumulating, but now we're kind of stuck with it. And that has, you know, metastasized in Texas. I mean, we, you know, Lauren Boebert was in Yoakum, Texas, you know, appearance with State Senator Lois Kolkhorst recently, you know, and there's things like, you know, the left has infiltrated the Democratic Party. You know, Texas is the red line between a constitutional U.S. republic. We talked about that language last week and socialism. And again, you know, I I don't want to I don't want to use Twitter as a representative example of what's going on in politics in the state, but it is an interesting place to see signaling, particularly from these kind of elements in the party. And this is, you know, seated state senator. Right. Well, and this is, you know, we've talked about sort of the the political advantage that's clearly there and kind of Biden moving this discussion, this direction and trying to really, you know, push this nationally. But there is actually, I think, you know, there is a very practical thing looking at Texas on the ground. We talked about Gillespie County. And one of the things in that article that you mentioned is something that kind of stuck out to me uh, in thinking about the upcoming election is, you know, I mean, you already pointed out, I mean, this is an overwhelmingly Republican county. You know, there's some concern here to some extent about, you know, what happens if some number of counties in Texas refuse to report? Right. Right. I mean, there's a sort of a sense here where, you know, where you say, like, the election system is broken, the election system is broken, the election system is broken. Well, eventually, a lot of these people are actually going to break the election system if you don't have people. Well, that, the that's elections. what's happened in Gillespie County. Well, and that's what happened in Gillespie <laughs> County. But the thing, if you look at that article, one of the things actually stuck out to me more so than some of the other things was they talked about uh, the belligerence of basically the poll watcher. And this was, you know, there right. who was essentially... You know, threat- physically intimidating, physically intimidating people, the- threatening people. They had to call the police on this person. Uh, you know, they're videotaping them outside. Now, ultimately, what has happened since that last election? 
the legislature has actually increased the rights of poll watchers and increased the penalties yep. for poll workers. One of the things that I think a lot of Democrats were concerned about, about the poll watching provisions in, in the Texas bill, uh, you know, <laughs> voting integrity bill that went through, is the idea of like, so who is going to show up at what precincts to, to stand there and do what? Yeah. And ultimately, I mean, what you see here in Gillespie County, overwhelmingly Republican County, is people showing up specifically to be intimidating yeah. and to mess up the process. One other thing that came out last, so, so first of all, what do you think is going to happen in Harris County, in Travis County? I mean, if ultimately this is a much more effective strategy in overwhelmingly Democratic right. places, especially on Election Day. I don't know if you've been following this piece. I'm sure you saw this. But the other sort of news and sort of election, where this all intersects this week, this week and last week, was the attorney general put out an opinion that basically yes. said that essentially anyone who wants to examine the ballots in an election, instead of waiting for a, a, a sort of a set waiting period, I think it was 22 days yeah. before that could happen, basically it should be done immediately. Now, what election administrators point out really very quickly is, hey, look, you know, the ballots are like our official record of this. And the last thing we need is, you know, basically a bunch of people coming in could basically do anything to the, the official ballots in the immediate aftermath of an election that would then ruin our actual paper record that everybody kind of right. cares about. Now, this guidance was in direct conflict to what the to what they had been advising counties to do literally right. up to five days before it was issued. Now, to say this was a political move, I'm just going to say it was a political move yeah. to, to give more juice to the people who want to challenge elections. But ultimately, the result might be that you've got people in the polling place disrupting the elections, maybe, you know, in certain kinds of counties more so than others. And then you have organized groups like we saw in Gillespie who might make a concerted effort literally the day after the election if they're whether or not they're happy yeah. with the outcome. To essentially go in and, and in some ways, you know, I don't want to say take over the process, but essentially destroy the evidence of the process that took place. Right. You know, well, so I mean, look, by, by the very intervention, you actually create the poisoning of the process that you're saying you're trying to prevent. And so on a practical right? side, there is a point here to be made by Biden that has nothing to do with all this. You know, people yeah. do need to be aware that this is going on. It's going on in Republican counties. It's going on in Democratic counties. You know, if you th if you live in a Republican county and you think that your county government is doing a relatively good job, you are still threatened by this. Yeah. I mean, look, the, ba you know. the basic facts of that situation in Gillespie County and other areas where they're having a hard time retaining experienced poll workers and experienced election, I should say, experienced election administrators, right. is that you have, in fact, undone the process, right? right? In other words, so, I mean, nobody should be surprised if, even if nobody showed up to be a poll watcher and there was no, you know, tactical disruption of the process, that the process doesn't go very well next time in Gillespie County because the experienced people that worked there have all been driven off, mm -hmm. and it's probably going to be pretty hard to find people with comparable experience to actually administer the election. Well, and also to administer the election legally, given the fact that the requirements that have been, uh, right. you know, the requirements of election administrators have been increased, increased basically every session, especially in the last session in terms of reporting and other things where, again, and the penalties are higher. So for these jobs that are not super high paying bureaucratic jobs that are generally, I mean, I'm just gonna say, staffed by people who want to do a good job running right. the election wherever they live. You know, yeah, these is, are $45,000, $50,000 a year jobs yeah. that are, you know, hard to do. Where so, you, and where you get threatened. So, you know, where do we wind up here? You know, the, the broader historical trajectory and the more immediate political moment are converging in this speech tomorrow. Be interesting to see what he's going to say. And I think more substantively in Biden's engagement of it. Yeah. You know, this is this is very powerful elite signaling mm -hmm. 
from, you know, one of the most powerful transmission stations for broadcasting such a signal. Right. So I'm very interested to see what, what kind of impact it has and how much it, how far it trickles down. And in terms of Texas, you know, we're always kind of keeping an eye on the degree to which we've seen increased nationalization of politics in the state. Mm-hmm. And yet, Texas being a big state, you know, with a rich political environment and a dynamic we like to think of, you know, I think rightly so, kind of all its own. Yeah. So, you know, my suspicion is that the Biden speech will not have a fundamental, you know, impact on attitudes here, especially among those who have already incorporated, you know, the last decade and a half of messaging, encouraging skepticism of the system and skepticism of, you know, than any national signaling that's coming through. Um, there's already been almost kind of inoculation against that. Nonetheless, when a president gives a speech on this, it's bound to affect a lot of coverage. It's bound to get a lot of, you know, uh, you, know there's, you know, the signal's powerful. Yeah, well, and if nothing else, I mean, what you always, what I always like to think about is, I mean, I think about this in all communications in some ways, like, how do you expect the other person to respond to yeah, that? Yeah, yeah. And I think that's useful just as like a social thing, but also you think about it this way and say, Okay, so Biden's going to do this. You know, it seems to me there's sort of three responses Republicans could choose, more or less broadly, right? They could agree with him. Let's just set that aside. They could ignore it, which I think it makes a lot of sense. Keep talking about the economy or border. Or they can push back against it. But ultimately, you know, I think... They can resist it they internally. Can, yeah, right. Right. And the idea here would be like, okay, and I'm talking more about the elite response. Oh, okay, in some ways. okay. I'm talking about the elite response more so. But even, even at the personal individualistic level, I mean, I think generally speaking, you know, endorsement of democracy fundamentals of it still pretty high yeah still pretty widespread i mean the issue i think you know in a lot of cases I mean, again there's a there's this elite you know discussion going on here where it sort of would say you know well are we still really fully in, invested in the sort of in this idea of democracy versus republic but that is a very high level discussion going on i think right. in some corners of the party but i think when you're talking about the vast vast majority of voters the idea of one person one vote do you agree disagree agree the idea that the winner should accept right. the outcome you're going to find overwhelming agreement with these things. So, you know, there's a lot of things to plan here. I think what I'm going to be watching for with the, with the Biden address is, you know, he's also been criticized a little bit for going a, a little too far in some of his rhetoric. So, I mean, on the one hand, he's trying to energize Democrats. Right. But on the other hand, he's trying he's got to be a little bit careful not to just go a little too far in terms of... Well, yeah. that's what I was going to say. I mean, I think a lot is going to depend on how he does it and yeah. how much he... Part of it is the language, just how far he goes with it. I mean, we we were talking before the podcast. I mean, and they've been sending up some trial balloons. Yep. I mean, you know, his his sort of, you know, semi-fascist mm-hmm. comment, you know, last weekend about, you know, and this adoption of the, you know, breaking out the group that he's calling the MAGA Republicans. And I yeah. think that's going to be a real, you know, does he deploy that rhetoric in the speech or does he try to, my suspicion is he's going to walk right up to it. Yeah but not quite go there, but we'll see. We'll see. So uh, that speech is Thursday night, depending on when you listen to this. I think it'll, you know, if you want to see it, it's going to be pretty easy to see. A primetime address from Independence Hall in Philadelphia. And again, in terms of the the political context of this, Pennsylvania, battleground state, you know, a couple of very hot races in Pennsylvania right now. So keep an eye out for that. So thanks to Josh. Thanks to our excellent production team in the audio studio in the liberal arts development studio at UT Austin and for treating us to use of their new gear, their new old gear. 
Um, thank you for listening. Remember, you can find uh, much of the data we referenced today, at least the Texas data, and much more at the Texas Politics Project website. That's texaspolitics.utexas.edu. So thanks again for listening, and we will be back soon with another Second Reading Podcast. The Second Reading Podcast is a production of the Texas Politics Project at the University of Texas at Austin. 